This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's good that you tuned in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you are out in your car and you want to call, the safest way to do it is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. We'd love to have your calls today. Because it's Wednesday, tonight we've got a Bible study, Genesis chapter 21. I was sort of in a dilemma whether or not to use, uh, to do the whole thing quickly or slow down in it. So I'm only going to end up doing verses 1 through 12 tonight and then we'll finish chapter 21 next week. And then, of course, tomorrow is our Thursday program, the Date Day Edition. Paula will be live in studio with me. And um, ladies, if you need any encouragement at all, boy, that's the time to do it. So that's tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. Let me go to our first question. This was sent in just now from our from our email inbox or to our email inbox from Scott. He said, is Jesus in John 17, 6 through 19, praying only and specifically for his disciples, or is he also including pastors that would become the church leadership through time till today? Um, Scott, I think the prayer is is a lot bigger, a lot broader than that. Um, he prays for them in the first part of the passage that you mentioned through verse 19. But then he says in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So, Scott, the answer to your question is answered really in in verse 20. Certainly he was praying for his disciples who will be apostles, preparing them for the work ahead. But he also says that, that there's a, a, a prayer benefit that goes down a quarter of time and space for the rest of us. And that means, Scott, that he's praying for you and me, not just for pastors. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And, of course, the apostles' message, that's what the first century church was founded on in Acts chapter 2. It's what we continue to minister holding on to that same foundation. And so he's praying for all of us. And this is, as I've said before in this program, this is uh, the, the chapter, I call it the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. This is where we get to sort of go behind the scenes and listen to Jesus pray. It's like we're eavesdropping. There are times I've actually felt a little uncomfortable. Um, at the same time, wonderfully grateful. Because he's praying to his father, he's praying for his disciples who will be apostles, and he's praying for me. He's praying for me. That means all those years, Scott, that I was running away from God, rebelling against him, 
he'd been praying for me. When in John chapter 17, his concerns really ought to have been with himself. He was the one that was facing the cross. So it's, it's, it's a marvelous prayer. John 17 is a prayer that we ought to read continually. Um, it, it's just of such great, great value, such unbelievable depth. So, Scott, thank you for the question. I hope that answers it. Here's a question from Jaden. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says he gave the Corinthians milk, not solid food. Does that mean he watered down the gospel? Jaden, no, he didn't water it down at all. What it meant is that while he was teaching them, that uh, he was just sharing with them basically Christ crucified and risen from the dead. His purpose at the beginning was to, to proclaim the gospel so that people get saved. And of course, we know that the message went out with great power in the church uh, in Corinth. Um, it would be by all standards, then and now, a big church. Um, the the impact of Paul's ministry, Paul spent about 18 months in Corinth. The impact of his ministry affected people from all levels of life, socio-levels, economic levels. And um, um, in 1 Corinthians, what Paul is doing is he's writing to them, um, rebuking them, scolding them, really, for how out of order their church is. And Paul is saying, basically, when I was there, I gave you milk. I didn't give you the solid stuff, the, the, the hard stuff. But then he says, you still need the small stuff. Now, with reference to milk, he's talking about sort of the pure milk of the word that Hebrews speaks about. So he's saying, here, here's the basics of the gospel. You have to believe these things first, and then this process of sanctification, Jaden, that we all go through, um, is, is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. That's when we learn more each day, and we get in from the, the stuff that we can understand easily and quickly to the more difficult things that Paul will later go on and talk about uh, in this very gospel, and specifically, uh, in more detail in Second Corinthians, so that he was giving them milk, he was giving them what they were able to hear. You know, if I and I have spoken to crowds um, largely of unbelievers in the past, and I don't just open the Bible and do a Bible study with them. I want to bring the gospel down to a level where they can understand it. And that's what he was saying. And, and so he's not excusing their bad behavior, nor is he watering down the gospel at all. What he's telling them in 1 Corinthians is, you, you now need solid food. It's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. It's time to toughen up. And it's time to commit to serving Jesus with our whole hearts, holding nothing back. So that's what he's referencing in that uh, reference to milk as opposed to solid food. Make no mistake, Paul, who, who wrote um, two-thirds, not quite two-thirds, but almost two-thirds of, um, of our New Testament, um, believe me, he never held anything back when they needed to hear it. And the first Corinthians uh, letter is him slowly building to the heavy stuff, the, the, the solid food stuff at the end. And by the way, he gets there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Thank you for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls. Here is a question from Janice. Um, she says, I know you are in an interracial marriage, but doesn't the Bible forbid those relationships? I'm not trying to stir trouble with you. Uh, Janice, I don't take any offense to that. Um, yes, we are in an interracial marriage. And by the way, today is our 48th wedding anniversary. Um, so I, I think we're past the probation stage. Um, but um, no, the Bible doesn't forbid interracial marriages like the one we're in. What the Bible um, forbids is marriages between believers and unbelievers. Now, when he talks in the Old Testament about interracial marriages or, or mixed marriages is really the term that's used, he's talking about his people, Israel, aren't to go out and marry into the pagan world. Because if you marry into the pagan world, you're going to start doing pagan things. You're going to start uh, worshiping um, false gods. And, and that's exactly, we know what happened because the, the Jews didn't listen. So he was saying, no, 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 keep your marriages pure by making them godly marriages. 
And so that's what he talked about. Now, there, there are marriages, um, uh, Boaz and Ruth. She, she was a, a Moabitess. Uh, but, but it was a, an equally yoked relationship as opposed to unequally yoked because she was a believer. She told Naomi, your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. And God was able to lead her right into uh, the place where Boaz could could redeem her. Not only that, but he delivered her right into the genealogy of our Lord Jesus himself. So uh, the Bible forbids only mixed marriages as it relates to believer and unbeliever. It doesn't forbid a black from marrying a white or or either from marrying a, a, a Hispanic man or woman. Um, God sees no race. God sees saved and unsaved only. Now, Janice, I'm going to take another minute to deal with this from a different perspective. Because as a pastor, this is one of the things that people, Christians now, it'd be different if I was talking about unbelievers, but Christians simply won't believe what the Bible says about this. The Bible forbids unequally yoked relationships, and we rush into them all the time. And every time we do, there is nothing but pain. Paul and I, neither one of us were saved when we got married. She got saved 13 years before I did, and that means she lived through 13 years of hell on earth that I put her through. I've asked, had people ask me to marry them. Uh, well, no, my, my, my fiancé is not a believer, but no, I won't do that. And the same thing is true whether it's the man or the woman. And every time they get married, they come back, the believer anyway comes back, and wants me to bless getting a divorce. And I can't do that either. So it's just one of those things, Janice, that even believers who, who say, yes, I believe the Bible is the Word of God, it's just a Bible verse that they completely ignore. First Corinthians 6, they completely ignore it, and they rationalize doing it because now they're in love. Now their emotions are involved. The Bible forbids marriages between believers and unbelievers. Think about it from this perspective, Janice. Why in the world? Would you want to spend your life with somebody here that isn't going to be in heaven? The pain is a result of spending your life here with somebody who doesn't love your Jesus, and there's always going to be tension and conflict. So, yes, I'm in an interracial marriage. Um, been there for a long time, and I am happy about it. Here is an anonymous question. Um, he or she... Uh, says, I think emotional abuse should be grounds for divorce. You said otherwise last week. And I don't know how long I've had this question anonymous, so I don't recall really the, the question um, that, that you're referring to. Um, but um, physical abuse, of course, is grounds for divorce. Uh, any, any woman especially, it, it does occur the other way around, but, but typically this is a woman who's being physically abused ought to get away from that man instantly. Get to a safe place. Don't rationalize staying. Uh, don't worry about where you're going to stay, how you're going to survive. Get out of the danger. Emotional abuse, and I think what I said, if I remember, was that, that being married to a jerk is not grounds for divorce. And, you know, we throw around the term abuse pretty easily, but, but typically somebody's just a jerk. They're not doing what you want them to do. They're not treating you with respect nor with dignity. As a believer, and I can link this into Janice's question about mixed marriages, uh, if you, with open eyes, even though your heart's sort of clouded by emotions and feelings, you go into a, a marriage with an unbeliever with your eyes wide open, you should expect to be emotionally abused. You should expect to be married to a jerk. So, um, I know you think emotional abuse should be grounds for divorce, but it's not. We're told to pray for them. We're told to represent Christ to them. We're told to submit to their leadership. Um, even when our leadership isn't godly, uh, as long as it doesn't conflict with what God's Word tells us to do. 
Um, but, but you made the choice. You made the choice. First Peter chapter 3 is sort of your go-to passage of Scripture. It was Paul's go-to passage of Scripture when God told her not to divorce me. Um, win him over with the beauty, with the joy in your life. Pray. Pray God works that way. So, I know you want it to be grounds for divorce, but it's just not. It doesn't mean you should sit there and take it. It doesn't mean that you can't defend yourself verbally. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't sit down and try to reason with him or with her if the roles are reversed. But when you promised God that you'd stay married, you do it unless he gives you or she gives you grounds for divorce, physical abuse, adultery, or if they desert you. If that's the case, then then uh, you are free to divorce, but always seek the Lord and see what he wants. I always add that, Anonymous, because um, had Paula not sought the Lord, everybody, including my mother, told her to divorce me. Um, imagine what we both would have missed out on if she hadn't sought the Lord. What do you want? And he told her to stay. I love Ron. You love Ron. So hang in there and do it for me. Just as I died for you, you do it for me. And uh, turned out pretty well in the end. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Jonathan. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is an impossible standard. Jonathan, it is. And then he asked, how are we supposed to understand it? Um, Jonathan, the Sermon on the Mount has is, is really tripped a lot of people up because they sit there, I'm going to turn the other cheek. They hit me on one, I'm going to turn the other one. If they steal my stuff, I'm going to give them the rest of my stuff. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is a standard. And, and if you don't understand this, then you're doomed, absolutely doomed to a life filled with frustration because we can't do it. In fact, we all know that we can't keep the law. Well, the Sermon on the Mount takes the law up several notches. You want to get to heaven without Jesus? Then you obey the law. Well, when Jesus was here in the Sermon on the Mount, what he's doing is he's raising the stakes. He's saying, well, you've heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And what he's saying is, if you want to get to heaven without believing in me, this is how good you've got to be. So it's not just the letter of the law, but the spirit behind the letter of the law that we've got to keep it. And Jonathan, if, if we try our hardest to keep it and we don't understand the intent of it, then we're just going to drive ourselves crazy trying to keep it. So when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, what it ought to do is drop you to your knees in gratitude for what Jesus has done. Make us so grateful for grace. Because there's no way we can maintain either the law or the spirit behind the law apart from Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus was really describing in the Sermon on the Mount his life. Turn the other cheek, he did it. Isaiah chapter 50. I gave my cheek to those who pulled out my beard. I offered my back to those who beat me. I offered my face to those who had spit upon me. So Jesus is saying, look, this is what I'm going to do for you because you can't do it for yourself. And when we get into that process of trying to do for ourselves what only God could do, well, that's how come so many Christians just get frustrated and give up. They lose all hope, Jonathan. So read it through that lens, and I think you'll understand two things. One, that you've been set free in a way because you couldn't set yourself free. The second thing that will happen to your life, it will fill your heart with gratitude and the things that you once took for granted, I don't think you will any longer. This great series of commentaries by Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, the old English preacher uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and I highly recommend it. There's another one by Ray Stedman, 
uh, and his stuff is free online, and, and I, I highly recommend uh, both of those to you. Good question, Jonathan. Thank you very, very much. Jeffrey, our phone's been quiet last week and this week. Jeffrey says, 1 John 3, 9 says, Christians do not sin. Do you agree that real believers do not sin? No, the idea in 1 John 3, and, and you've got to read the whole context. Don't just go verse shopping here, Jeffrey. But the whole idea is that we don't willfully sin and we don't live a lifestyle characterized by sin. If we continue to sin, then we're really not, we're identified then as not being believers. We're really not uh, men or women committed to Jesus Christ. So he's not talking about um, we don't sin at all, that we can we can achieve perfection. And that's the, the, the heresy that, that is often derived from this. But we also remember in the same letter, he also said anyone who says he does not sin is a liar. And the truth is isn't in him. So you, you've got to read it in context. But yeah, Jeffrey, we all sin continually, according to Paul in Romans chapter 3, and we continually fall short of the glory of God. Um, but, but when we sin as a lifestyle, habitually, one of those things, well, God will forgive me kind of thing, but I'm going to just do what I want to do, um, that identifies you as an unbeliever. So to, to say that real believers don't sin is to miss the whole point of this passage. Real believers want to do what's right. We want to walk with Jesus. We, we want to be um, holy and pure and acceptable to him. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of, of sanctification. But when we fall short, 1 John 1, 9 says that we have an advocate with the Lord. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. So uh, there has never been a real believer who doesn't sin ever, not ever, not anyone. Jesus alone was perfect in all of his ways. So Jeffrey, I hope that makes sense to you. Don't struggle with um, this false teaching out there of we can become sinless and and uh, as Christians we are no longer sinners we're sinners every time we miss the mark here's a question from Jacob is Genesis 1 and 2 to be taken literally especially that the world was created in six literal 24 hour days Jacob this is a hobby horse of mine and, and uh, so I'm going to be very very direct here um, the only way to understand Genesis 1 and 2, in fact, let me extend this to the first 11 chapters of Genesis, is to understand them literally. Over and over and over, the Holy Spirit goes out of his way to say that on day one, the evening and the morning of the first day, the evening and the morning of the second day, the evening and the morning of the third day, and so on and so forth. And because it does that, it's like the Holy Spirit is saying, yes, these are 24-hour days. The, the other thing about the Hebrew word um, uh, is, is that it, it can only be, it is only translated uh, to mean a literal 24-hour day. So whenever we start thinking, well, maybe there was a gap theory or maybe we were created some other way and maybe we're not to take this literally, then we're, we're, we're absolutely wrecking the sensibility of, of the book of Genesis. If you don't take Genesis, the first 11 chapters, literally, then we lose um, the value of our faith. We, we, we've lost the doctrine of original sin. Uh, we've lost the, the, the doctrine of, of a substitutionary atonement. Um, the only way to understand it is to believe it. Now, here's the problem, Jacob. We have a lot of people that have been brainwashed in their public education to believe that we're millions or billions of years old, that we either evolve from lower life forms, it's Darwinism, or that we are all just sort of an accident because of the Big Bang Theory. Um, um, that doesn't make any sense. And science proudly proclaims that. But remember, science is anti-God. They begin with the premise that there is no God, so they've got to come up with alternate explanations. 
And it's dishonest science. I jokingly sometimes call it science fiction. But it's something that we've got to make a decision. In the beginning, God, the first four words of the Bible. And Jacob, if you believe those first four words, it's easy to believe the rest. And then as you pursue your biblical education, you're going to find overwhelming evidence to support the truth of a literal interpretation of our Bibles. It's very important that you take it literally. Yes, the world was created in six literal 24-hour days. And any notion to the contrary is arguing against the truth of the Word. You've got to make a choice. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. We would love your calls at 340-9585. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the Word to Stand On for Life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Hector. He says, Pastor Ron, can a Christian lose his salvation through bad behavior? Um, Hector, the answer is no, if in fact he or she is really a Christian. I mean, we know Christians act out. We know Christians sin. Um, sometimes we, we justify our sin and we continue in sin. But if somebody's really a believer, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, says that, We were sealed with a deposit, the promised Holy Spirit guaranteeing our inheritance. So here's the question, not can a Christian lose his salvation, but is that professing Christian really saved? Now, Hector, here's where we really have to understand this problem. Christians, by virtue of being born again, The Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. The Holy Spirit is always pointing us to Christ. And if we're following Jesus, then we're not going to participate in bad behavior. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but it means that we're going to want to do what's right. If somebody who says they're a Christian can continue to sin, can continue to exhibit bad behavior, then my question to them is what makes them think they're really a Christian at all? makes them think they're really a Christian at all. So if they are saved, they always will be saved. But there's a lot of people, Hector, walking around who say they're a Christian, but they've never really surrendered their heart to Jesus Christ. They haven't been born again. And uh, the bad behavior is simply an identifying mark of who they really are. So if you want to sin, you probably don't belong to Jesus. I'm not talking about being tempted and giving in. But I mean, if you get up and you well, I'm going to sin. I don't care what God says. I'm going to have sex. Or I'm going to do drugs. Or I'm going to drink too much. Then um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and Galatians chapter 5 says, if you live a life characterized by those things, then you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So that means you never were saved. If you're doing bad things and you don't say whether or not this is a personal question, Hector, but if you're doing bad things every day, then you need to examine your heart to see if you're really a believer at all. The stakes are so high. This is just one of those things where we can't take any chances. So Hector, no, a Christian cannot lose his or her salvation through bad behavior or anything else. If you really are saved, God himself guarantees your inheritance. If you have no desire to please God, then the question is, what makes you think you're a Christian at all? Going to church, answering an altar call, being baptized, none of that makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is loving Jesus and surrendering to his lordship in your life. 
Thank you for the question, Hector. Let's go to our first phone call today. But Nancy on line one. Nancy, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Good. Hello, Pastor Ron. Hi, um, Nancy. Hi. I wanted to talk to you and bring this up a little bit. I know that, you know, we have always talked about um, witnessing to our unsaved loved ones, um, being an example, telling them about Jesus. And I had a chance to do that again today. But I have a son who you know, and um, he's gotten very hard against the gospel. And he asked me to please not tell him any more about it. Um, I wanted to speak to him because of the urgency. When he called me uh, from prison, which I don't get phone calls too often, but when he did, I was reading my Bible, and I wanted to share with him what I was reading, and I just asked him, and he said, please don't tell me, you know, any more about it. Um, I I was able to go ahead and, you know, I went ahead. I, I said things I haven't said to him probably ever before in my life. I really believe it was the Holy Spirit. It was done in firmness but in love. Um, and I know we're not supposed to stop praying. Mm-hmm. And I won't. But I what came to my mind was Jesus and the young ruler. The you know because Jesus loved him. But he didn't want to give up his possessions and his money. Mm-hmm. And it broke Jesus' heart. But Jesus had to move on. Yeah. Um, and you know, I couldn't have been in that place probably five years ago. Yeah. You know, and I even told my son about it that, you know, um, um, I brought that up, and he got mad that I felt that way, <laughs> you know. Um, so I'm not really sure what I'm trying to say. I, I, is there a mm-hmm. point where you do keep talking, but it's time maybe just to be quiet and let the Holy Spirit work on them? I guess that's what I'm mm-hmm. trying to get to. Thank you, Nancy. You know? We've got a, a, a constant clicking on your phone in the background, so... Um, if you if you'd listen off uh, off the phone and on the air, that would be that would be a blessing. Nancy, these are always really hard things, but one of the things that we've got to do is let people know that we care so much about them that we're never going to stop telling them about Jesus. So when he says, "Please don't tell me about him anymore. I don't want to hear any more about this," my response would have been, "Well, then don't call me because you're on your way to hell." And every time you call me, every opportunity I get, I've got to tell you about Jesus. So if you don't want to hear it, don't call me. And Nancy, that sounds harsh to some people. But the idea here is we want to cut off his lifelines. We want to cut off anybody that, 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 that might provide him any sense of comfort. Because what we want to happen is we want to force our kids to wrestle with Jesus. And th- this could be kids, it could be spouses, anything, but but we can never stop talking about Jesus. And when unbelievers are, they want our, they want our conversation, they want to be in touch with us, if we really care about them, we're going to be far more concerned about their eternal state than we are about their temporal state. And the safest way to do it is just say, look, you come to my house, you call my house. Um, one day when you get out, if you want to see me, you're going to hear about Jesus. And if you don't want to hear, then don't come over, don't call. And as hard as that is, this is a mother who loves her son, as hard as that is, we've got to give them the understanding that that their eternal state is so important to us that we're willing to risk the temporal relationship. Now, obviously, your son knows your relationship with God. He knows how important it is. But if you are, are willing to say, 
You call me, it's going to be about Jesus. I'll tell you I love you. I'll listen to what you have to say, but I'm going to tell you about Jesus. If they don't want to do that, well, that's the choice they make. And all you can do is leave him to the Holy Spirit and continue to pray. And I know you're always going to pray, but it's just something you don't make small talk when important talk is what's required. we got to tell people, Nancy, about Jesus. And God bless you, and our heart goes out for you. Um, these are the things that we deal with all the time with these kids who have sort of flown the coop and pursued sin. Um, you keep praying, you keep telling about Jesus. At the end, I've seen a lot of these kids, a lot of them, I've seen him come to Christ before it was too late. And that's pretty much what we can hope for. Nancy, God bless you. Sorry for your pain. 340-9585. Let's go to an anonymous call on line two from San Antonio. Thanks for calling. You are on the air. Well, hello. Thank you. Can you hear me? I can hear you great. Oh, okay, because you mentioned just a little bit ago that there was a lot of clacking going on, and I'm having that on my phone, so maybe it is me causing all the defugal <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think it was the, uh, the just Nancy's phone in the background. And, well, and, it's uh, mine. I, I still have it, the problem. So hey, I apologize. Maybe, maybe, maybe we're about to get raptured, and, and that's just... Interference well, I, I apologize for the clacking and and difficulty because I'm having a hard time concentrating on it. But uh, <laughs> as you had previously mentioned about, uh, you know, if you were really saved or not, and and on to that. But uh, I and I know you do not uh, like the uh, idea of uh, backsliding. However, is there is there some kind of way that a person could know if they are actually really saved because of their actions or or if they are backsliding because they're not really saved? And you know, is there is there a a, a, a matter of time that goes by that could clue them in? And uh, and that's kind of just a, a, a simple idea, and uh, you know if they're if they're continuing not to follow what is supposedly what they believe in the Bible, and and <clears throat> proclaim to be saved, how what what do you do with that sort of a person? And I'm I'm going to get off and listen on the radio because my phone is just terrible. Okay. Thank you, Anonymous. I appreciate it very, very much. I know exactly what you're getting to. You know, the idea of backsliding, I hate the term, and, and I've said it over the years so many times, because it's like a really polite way of excusing sin. You know, instead of being a fornicator, well, you know, I'm in love. We're having an affair. Or, well, you know, I know I shouldn't drink, but... But, um, you know, I just need it to relax, those kind of things. That's backsliding. Um, But an unbeliever can't backslide because they've never been with the Lord. So the, the, the key here, like in the earlier question, the key here is, were you ever really saved? And your your question, how can you know, or is there a way you can know? Read First John. First John is all about that we might know for a certainty that we have eternal life. And and John gets very direct. If you say you, you don't sin, you're a liar, the truth isn't it. If you say you love God, but don't love his people, you're a liar. If you say you love God, but you sin, you're a liar. Uh, so the idea is, is, is intentionality. Uh, if, if you sin willfully, or if you, if you repeat the same behavior every single day, and you think, well, you know, I'm, I think I'm saved. The question that we have to ask is, what makes us think that? You know, you're not saved because you answered an altar call or because you got baptized. You're not saved because you were raised in Texas or in a Christian home. You're saved because you died to the old you and a new you 
not a slightly improved version of the old you, a new you is born again. And the new you wants to please Christ. It doesn't mean you're always going to do that, but it does mean you're always going to want to. So the question is, were you ever really saved? Now, the man or the woman who involves themselves in long-term sin, and this is always where we have the difficulty trying to figure out um, who's saved, who isn't saved. Um, you know, we, we read in, in um, Peter's epistle that, that Lot was a righteous man, but, but he was vexed in his spirit by all of the filth around him. You see, that's the the plot, um, or the plight, rather, of of, uh, a born-again believer. If we really save, when we sin, it destroys us inside. David said, when I stayed silent, my bones were wasting away inside me. He was in torture, trying to cover his sin, trying to pretend that it was okay. And I think sometimes the real believer is vexed in his or her spirit because we know we're not pleasing to God and the, the, the new you, the born again you, says, well, that's what I want to do. And I think sometimes, Anonymous, when we look at our salvation as sort of life insurance, that's an indication that you really don't understand what God has done for you. The man who steals must steal no more. The man who drinks needs not to drink anymore. The man who's angry and uses foul language and takes God's name in vain, born again, he must not do those things anymore. The fornicator has to stop. So your behavior identifies who you are, or at least how you're living. Your response to that behavior is going to determine in your heart in a way that you'll know that you either belong to him or you don't belong to him. When I sin, if I hate it, it's because Christ lives in me. But if I sin and get used to it, I have no guarantee that Christ lives in me. If it doesn't bother me, if if I can sin with impunity, well, then I'm in a position where I'm trampling on the grace of God. And one of the things that just breaks this pastor's heart is that we Christians, professing Christians, we often don't even think in those terms. We just think, oh, it's it's okay, God understands. When in reality, what God is saying is, I want your heart and soul. And that's what we've really got to do. We've got to understand that when we sin, we sin against a God who loves us so much that he died in our place. And that hurts the, the, the born-again heart. And we can't ever be okay with living like that. So, Anonymous, I hope that helps. I, I, I think that's where you were going with it. and um, It's something that I deal with as a pastor all the time. Good question. Here's a really honest question from Andrew. He says, I know we're supposed to love God more than anything or anyone, but I struggle with that. How do I love God more than my family or my career? Um, Andrew, I'm choosing my words carefully. Read the Song of Solomon. Song of Songs, some of the, some of the Bibles have it. Read the parts that say lover, because that's Jesus speaking to you. How can you not love him more than anything else? Jesus said himself that if you put anything else or anyone else ahead of him, that you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I understand the struggle. How do you love God more than you love your wife? I say all the time that I love Paula more than I ever believed it was possible to love another human being. But I love Jesus infinitely more. And then it's the love of Christ that I'm able to love her with. So how do you love God more than your wife or more than your kids? You've got to get to know him better. And typically, Andrew, and again, I'm not judging you, but typically when people ask questions like this, the, 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 their, their promise is they don't really know Jesus. They know him enough to be saved, 
but they don't really know him. They haven't dug in to find out what he's done for them. We are currently on Friday nights here at Calvary Chapel. We are in um, the book of Ephesians. And if you would just park for a week, um, read several times a day in the first three chapters of Ephesians, and you get to the place where you really understand what he's done for you. We've had two great Friday night studies in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 was one study, and then 11 through 13 was the next week's study. When you understand what he's done for you, then your heart just explodes with gratitude. And you're grateful because you really and truly love him with all of your heart. And then you understand who he is and the priority in your life. But anything that you put ahead of God, whether it's family or career, and those are typically good things, but they become idols. And God's not going to compete for your affection, and he's intentionally, and you're going to make things difficult. So how do you love God more than your family or career? You've got to get to know Him. And it would seem that you're not investing time in really getting to know Him. When we are born again, we come to Jesus. We're coming to a stranger. Now, we're grateful that He's forgiving us of our sins, but we don't really know Him at all. Well, the rest of your Christian life is to develop that relationship the way you loved your wife and learn to love her more than anything or anyone, is you got to know her. You spent time with her. You talked to her. You let her share her heart with you. And your love just grew. Well, it's exactly the same way with Jesus. Now, with career, you mentioned your family or career. Career, usually there's other things involved, like pride. All you have to do is just say, Jesus, none of that, none of that matters if I don't have you. And Andrew, I've been praying for most of my 29 years with the Lord, this prayer, Lord, help me to fall more in love with you today than I've ever been before. And he'll do that if you give him the opportunity to do it. If you'll give him the opportunity to do it, I promise you, he will. Let's go. Uh, go. Nancy is, is on the line. She says her phone line is better. Nancy, thanks for calling back. How, how can we help? Yes, I have a question about Celebrate Recovery. Some churches have this program, and it's modeled after the Alcoholics Anonymous program, except for they include Jesus. And I've been to a few of the programs, and it seems like, I don't see people overcoming their sins. It's like the same people yep. keep coming over back and back and back over and over, and, and, and they don't overcome their sins. And the Bible says we're supposed to be overcomers. So I just want to know your thoughts about Celebrate Recovery. I can do that, Nancy. Uh, my producer said that, that uh, your phone line is better. This is not the same Nancy that called earlier for for the, the, the listeners. Nancy, um, Celebrate Recovery is... is um, 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 if this offends anybody, it's not my intent, but it's like putting lipstick on a pig. Twelve-step uh, groups are not just inconsistent with Christianity. They are in contradistinction to Christianity. And celebrate recovery is simply using spiritual terms um, and, and, and Jesus Christ is in exchange for higher power, but it's the same kind of thing. And, and it forgets all about the victory that's been won for us on the cross. We were once, Paul writes, um, under control, uh, under the control of sin, but now we're controlled by righteousness. And Celebrate Recovery, AA, and all of the others, they teach it once an addict, always an addict. And you're right, there's no victory, there's no overcoming, there's no power. That's having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. I mean, it's heartbreaking to me, Nancy, that so many churches, because people come in and they want help. They want a program because we've been sort of brainwashed in this world uh, to, to the programs will help. Um, Jesus is a one-step program, not a 12-step program. That doesn't mean you're not going to still struggle with sin or with addiction. But what it really means is that you never again have to give in to that sin. 
that Jesus has won the victory. The old is gone, the new has come. And, and that's why when I, when I hear Celebrate Recovery or Christians going to, to, to AA or Gamblers Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, I just think, wait a minute, you don't understand the first thing that our Bible promises about the victory that we have in Christ. We are overcomers. Not we will eventually overcome someday. We don't measure our sobriety uh, in terms of how many days or how many years we've been sober. When we come to Jesus Christ, then that burden of sin is lifted from us and we're then able to walk in freedom. And unfortunately, um, churches have bought into this completely. And um, while Celebrate Recovery sounds like a wonderful thing, we can get up and give everybody applause. We all can celebrate the recovery that was won for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. So Nancy, your discernment is right on. Uh, this is not a Christian program, even though you're going to find it in churches, not in the least. It is, in fact, um, we're depriving Christians who really need the power of God in their lives. We're depriving them of that power. Thank you for the question, Nancy. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Remember, Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow on the Date Day edition of the program. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and we'll be back tomorrow, Lord willing. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.